Welcome to Pete Soup. I'm your host, Jim McCarthy. For this episode, we're going to talk measles, which I can honestly say I never planned on doing a whole episode about. When I took my pediatrics boards way back in 2017, measles was a footnote. If you remembered a red rash, coplic spots, and that it was more common outside the U.S., you could identify all the cases, and the answer to most of the questions was to vaccinate everyone. Now, a few months into 2019, measles is everywhere. Well, in six states and counting, but it's still a much more practical topic than it used to be. Even with the recent outbreaks, it's not a common disease, so I had to expand my usual research strategy and pull information from the AAP Red Book, along with guides from the World Health Organization and even Doctors Without Borders. We'll start with some history, which, coincidentally enough, is what measles is supposed to be. Measles is incredibly contagious, with infection developing in somewhere around 90% of susceptible people who are exposed, and it's been common around the world throughout history. From 1958 to 1962, the U.S. averaged just over half a million reported cases of measles and 432 measles-related deaths per year. And there are some sources, including the Centers for Disease Control, who think that's likely a huge underestimate because the disease was so common that most people didn't even bother reporting it. That 1958 to 1962 range is worth mentioning because the measles vaccine was licensed in the U.S. in 1963, and wow was it effective. Jonas Salk is the only vaccine developer anybody knows, and he deserves it because stopping polio was a huge accomplishment. But John Ender should really get more credit for the measles vaccine. 95 to 98% of patients develop immunity after one dose, and that jumps up to more than 99% in patients who get a second dose as a booster. That second booster dose is standard practice now, due in large part to a spike in reported measles cases from 1989 to 1991. I should also clarify that by spike, I mean that during that entire span from 89 to 91, there were around 50,000 cases in the U.S., what was concerning enough to change immunization practices in the early 90s was just 10% of what was happening every single year in the pre-vaccine days. Since then, the regimen has been the same, with one dose given at 12 to 15 months and a second dose at least four weeks later, typically around four years old in general practice. The change made the vaccine even more effective, to the point where in 2000, an independent panel declared the U.S. was no longer an endemic area for measles. It's not just the U.S. either. From the year 2000 to 2016, improved vaccination programs led to an 84% drop in worldwide measles cases. In 2016, there were just under 90,000 reported measles deaths worldwide, which is definitely still a lot, but it was actually the first year ever with fewer than 100,000 deaths. So much progress has been made that all World Health Organization regions set a goal of eliminating measles by the year 2020. We kind of messed that one up. We were doing a good job for a while there. We really were. From 2001 to 2008, the U.S. had a median of 56 cases per year with a maximum of 140. Things were a little worse between 2009 and 2014, mostly due to rough years in 2011, 2013, and 2014, but things got back on track, and in 2017, there were just 120 reported cases in the U.S. Since then... It's been bad. There are 372 cases in 2018, and in 2019, there have been 314 reported cases through March 21st. 
That's 84% of the total number of cases from the entire year last year in just 80 days. The problem comes back around to how contagious measles is. With such a high infection rate, about 9 out of 10 susceptible people who are exposed, just a handful of cases coming in can spread in a hurry. Because of that high infectivity, you need a really high vaccination rate to keep the disease from spreading. The WHO did the math and came up with about 95%, and considering that the vaccine isn't routinely recommended for anyone under 1 or who's immune suppressed, that means immunizing just about everyone who's eligible. Once someone's infected with measles, it looks pretty similar to a lot of other viral illnesses. Patients will develop a fever, cough, conjunctivitis, and coryza, which is a fancy way of saying nasal mucosal inflammation. Coplic spots, the classic test question feature, also appear early on in the course. They're clusters of white spots on the insides of the cheeks that are pathognomonic for measles and the best way to separate it from other diseases. The rash doesn't come until later. It's maculopapular, so flat areas of redness with little bumps, and spreads from the head down and from the center of the body out to the arms and legs. Patients are considered contagious from four days before the rash until four days after it goes away, so keep that timeline in mind if you have to go looking for people who might have been exposed. Measles has similar complications to other viral illnesses too, with ear infections, pneumonia, croup, and diarrhea all being pretty common. It also comes with a risk of acute encephalitis, around 1 in 1,000 cases, which can lead to permanent neurologic damage. Measles results in about 1 to 3 deaths per 1,000 cases here in the U.S., usually due to respiratory and neurological complications, with higher mortality rates in kids under 5, pregnant women, and people who are immunocompromised. The last thing to mention for measles complications is subacute sclerosing panencephalitis, which is a degenerative central nervous system disease with behavioral and intellectual deterioration and seizures. It happens somewhere between 7 and 11 years after a measles infection, and is incredibly rare, especially in the vaccine era. It's rare enough that it was the diagnosis on an episode of House. It's worth knowing about just in case of a test question, but knowing that it exists is about all you need. Because measles is a super contagious reportable illness, if you think your patient has it, you should contact the local health department and get confirmatory testing as soon as possible. The preferred test used to be checking blood for IgM against measles, but now PCR testing for measles RNA has become more popular. To maximize your chances of making the diagnosis, it's recommended to collect samples from the serum, throat, and urine as soon as possible after the rash appears, since viral shedding starts declining from that point on. If the diagnosis is made, it should be reported to the CDC within 24 hours. Once you diagnose a patient with measles, there's not a lot to do other than supportive care. Ribavirin is effective in vitro and has been used for patients with severe cases, but there aren't any controlled trials to give any evidence for using it, and it's not licensed by the FDA for measles treatment. There is some data that shows patients who receive vitamin A have improved morbidity and mortality, and the evidence is strong enough that the WHO recommends treating anyone with acute measles with two days of vitamin A therapy. Beyond that, it's the usual maintaining hydration and respiratory support as needed until the disease runs its course. Most recommendations for measles management are focused on outbreak control. Giving a dose of the vaccine within 72 hours of exposure can reduce the risk of infection, so it should be offered to anyone who's eligible, 
basically people older than six months without any immunodeficiency, and who hasn't already received both doses. As a side note, if you do give a dose of the vaccine to a patient under a year old as post-exposure prophylaxis, it doesn't count toward the two doses they need to be certified as immune. It will give the patient some protection from being infected, but there's still enough maternal antibodies circulating around to interfere with producing long-term immunity. Speaking of antibodies, giving IV immunoglobulin is also an option for post-exposure treatment. IVIG is recommended for susceptible pregnant women along with people who are immunodeficient or otherwise unable to get the vaccine. IVIG is also effective within six days of exposure, so it can be given if someone doesn't find out they're at risk until they're outside that vaccine window. In the end, everything comes back to the vaccine. With better than 95% immunity rates, it's about as effective as it's possible to be, and it's also very, very safe. There are, of course, some adverse effects. 5-15% to of kids develop a fever within a few days after getting the vaccine. The fever is usually asymptomatic, but somewhere between 3 and 9 per 10,000 vaccinated kids will have a febrile seizure. Febrile seizures are definitely distressing, but if you go way back to one of our first episodes, you'll hear why they're nothing to worry too much about. Around 5% of kids will develop a transient rash that, again, is usually asymptomatic, and 1 in 20 to 40,000 will have transient asymptomatic thrombocytopenia. There is a risk of vaccine-related encephalitis or encephalopathy, but it is literally less than a one in a million chance. That's actually lower than the incidence of idiopathic encephalitis, so it might very well just be a coincidence in timing and not actually related to the vaccine. And, of course, I have to say, there is no link between measles or any other vaccine and developing autism. I'm not trying to minimize adverse effects, But when you compare vaccine efficacy and adverse effect rates to the fact that measles comes with a mortality rate of up to 3 per 1,000 cases, the benefits of vaccinating definitely outweigh the risks. That pretty well sums up measles. For take-home points, have a high index of suspicion for any patients who haven't been fully immunized and have viral symptoms along with a maculopapular rash. Coplic spots are the main distinguishing feature for measles and will be a major clue that comes up in any test questions. To make the diagnosis, collect samples from the blood, urine, and throat to send for PCR testing, and notify the health department and CDC of any definite cases. From there, it's a lot of respiratory and hydration support, and maybe some vitamin A. For everyone who hasn't been diagnosed, whether they've been exposed or not, vaccinate and vaccinate again until they've gotten two doses at least four weeks apart. It's one of the safest and most effective treatments out there for anything. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, give us a rating on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts. To keep up to date on new episodes or any other interesting things I feel like sharing, you can follow me on Twitter at PEDSOUP, P-E-D-S-S-O-U-P. For any feedback or suggestions, you can reach me on Twitter or email PEDSOUP at gmail.com. I'm Jim McCarthy, and we'll be back next time, hopefully not talking about more vaccine-preventable diseases, on another episode of PEDSOUP.